0: What got you there what got, you, got, you. What got you there with there got you there with what got you there with Matthew Polly is the national Chandel- best-selling author of American Shalin and Tapped Out. His newest book, Bruce Lee: A Life, is the biography of one of the most transformational celebrities that the world has ever seen. In this episode, Matt uncovers some of the fascinating stories of Bruce Lee. Sean and Matt also discuss Matt's journey from leaving Princeton to study Kung Fu for two years at the Shaolin Temple in China. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on epic adventures? If so, then GlobeKick is what you're looking for. GlobeKick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. GlobeKick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, GlobeKick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the sandblast islands in the Caribbean in August and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Matthew, thank you for joining us on what got you there. How are you today? Uh, excellent, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, of course. You you are a pretty interesting fella. Uh, I mean, Princeton graduate, Rhodes scholar, best-selling writer. And so what we usually do is we usually focus on the guests. But for this podcast, I really want to introduce the listeners to your newest work, Bruce Lee, A Life, that you wrote basically a Bruce Lee biography. And I want to hear a little bit more about Bruce and then transition on to you. So if that works for you, that's what we'd like to do today. That sounds awesome. Cool. So, I mean, what led to you writing about Bruce Lee?
1: Well, Bruce was my childhood hero. Um, I was like a skinny, bullied 12-year-old when I first saw Enter the Dragon. And I, I saw that he, was, he looked like somebody skinny who turned himself into a total badass. And so that's, at 12, what I totally wanted to be. Um, and so I took up the martial arts and continued practicing it. And, of course, we'll get into more of the details of that. But uh, he sort of... Uh, shaped and changed the course of my life. Uh, and then after I'd become a best-selling author and writing about the martial arts, someone suggested, why don't you do a book on Bruce Lee? And my initial reaction was, that's a terrible idea. There has to be half a dozen great biographies about him. Uh, and then when I looked it up and realized there wasn't one, now, the last one had been written 25 years ago and was poorly researched. I was insulted on Bruce's behalf, that no one had thought that the Asian Kung Fu master who impacted such a tremendous swath of Western culture, deserved a decent biography. And so uh, I thought this was the way I could
0: pay back the debt I feel I owe to Bruce Lee. Why do you think it is that there wasn't great literature on him?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think part of it is that in our culture, um, any white guy who does anything gets a biography. And, a black guy who white people know gets a biography, but Asians, in particular, are probably the most ignored ethnic group in Western culture. Um, they just fly under the radar, and so if you try to think of you know a famous Asian American other than Bruce Lee, it's hard to come up with a name. Um, and so I think that's part of it. Also, kung fu and martial arts um, is treated as a kind of um, you know niche fascination when, in fact, you know, there's 20 million people practicing martial arts in the United States. You know, everybody in the suburbs has their kid at Taekwondo classes. So it's actually a major cultural activity. But for whatever reason, it's treated as some kind of a lowbrow. And I often joked if Bruce Lee had been a painter, (laughs) he would already have three good biographies. (laughs) So I think those are the two main factors. um, And I want to
0: rectify that. I mean, those are some great points. It was funny. While I was at the store, uh, I I saw the book on the bookshelf, and it it was funny. I was thinking about Bruce, and he has this almost mystique about him, and I was trying to wrap my brain around, did I even really know much about him, where it seems like everyone's familiar with Bruce Lee, but I had no clue about his story. And and where do you think Bruce developed that universal appeal?
1: I It's in part because, of course, his influence, he introduced more Americans and Westerners to Asian culture than any other person to ever live. I mean, very few people studied the martial arts before him. And so like a missionary, he converted a bunch of people to martial arts, which is a kind of quasi religion. If you know any martial artists, they're pretty fanatical about their art form. Um, I think that's part of it. And then, you know, Dying early helps, (laughs) but we know what James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, uh, someone who dies, a celebrity who dies at the peak of their powers has a kind of mystique that they carry with them. And then there's a little bit about celebrity in which there are sort of modern version of Greek mythology. So Marilyn Monroe is the goddess of love or sex, uh, and Bruce became the sort of god of kick and butt you know, if anybody's a great fighter, they're like Bruce Lee, and so that became his kind of iconic image. Uh, and so he slots in our mental framework. You know, if somebody's a great fighter, he's like Bruce Lee.
0: Have you ever put any thought into what his career would have played out like if, had he not died?
1: Yeah, I put a lot of thought into that because as you watch. And I'm sure as you saw reading the book, he had a very interesting career before he made the four kung fu movies that made him famous. Uh, He was a child actor. His first appearance was when he was two months old. His dad was an actor. He made 20 uh, films before he was 18. He was kind of the Macaulay Culkin of Hong Kong. He played Scrappy Orphans and Street Urchins, and none of those movies were kung fu flicks. So I often felt that after he had become famous making kung fu movies, he would have branched out into other genres i think he would have been a little like clint eastwood who bruce modeled his career after he would have made i think uh, comedies action comedies uh and i he would have done some romantic flicks who knows if those would have worked but I think he would have made a lot of different types of films, and we would think of his image differently if he had lived longer.
0: Yeah, I mean two things that really surprised me with reading the book. First off, like you just mentioned, being a child actor in Hong Kong, I, was, I wasn't I was aware of the number of films he did as a child and then also his lineage, uh, who some of his, uh, his family members were. Can you kind of let us know just kind of where he came from originally?
1: Yes, yeah, so that – It was absolutely fascinating. So Bruce Lee fans uh, knew he was uh, partly Eurasian, um, but they believed his grandfather was German. And that was it. And I had actually written that chapter because that's in every other previous book. Uh, even his siblings say that's his ancestry. And it wasn't until very late in the process that I stumbled upon, in a kind of deep Google dive, some information that led me you know, here and there, and I, I'm in the Austra- you know, Australian library pulling out books. It turns out his great-grandfather was Jewish. Um, Dutch-Jewish specifically, uh, born in Rotterdam, and his great-grandfather came to Hong Kong, uh, bought a Chinese concubine, and had six children with her. And one of those was Bruce's grandfather. And Bruce's uh, grandfather and great-uncle became the richest men in Hong Kong. And his grandfather actually had 13 concubines and a secret British mistress, who was Bruce's grandmother. So Bruce Lee is an interesting person, um, not only because of what he did, but also his heritage. He was part Dutch-Jewish, part English, and, of course, part Han Chinese.
0: Another thing I'm I'm curious about is you mentioned how he's a child actor first and then gets into, into the martial arts. How do you think the martial arts impacted his acting and vice versa? How did the acting impact, impact his martial arts?
1: Well, there's a great phrase he uses in Enter the Dragon that all the fans know where he says you need to attack with emotional content. And that's a very actorly phrase, right? That Uh, All actors are trying to invest their actions on screen with emotional content. That's a kind of Stella Adler uh, method acting technique. And so the idea that Bruce thought the martial arts should also have emotional content is actually contrary to the way most uh, people, including myself, were taught martial arts. You're supposed to take the emotion out so your opponent doesn't see any reaction to what they do. Um, and so I think Bruce thought of the martial arts as an extension of acting in an in a interesting and intriguing way. Uh, and then, of course, um, he first was an actor, then he became a martial artist, and then he combined the two of those to become a martial arts actor. Uh, and so uh, he's really known because he was good at both, And very few of our sort of action stars can do both well. They're either martial artists like Chuck Norris who try to be actors or they're actors who try to you know learn six months of martial arts and try to do it on screen. And Bruce Lee was actually a very good actor and a genius martial artist. And I think that's part of the reason why he's so well-known is because no one else has been able to combine those two skills.
0: One thing I'd like to talk about is is his confidence. And I was kind of surprised hearing about just how obsessed he was with vanity and what impact do you think his self-confidence had in the success he he saw uh could you repeat that that actually kind of faded out on me yep yeah no so i'm just fascinated by his obsession with his vanity and i want to know how confidence played in all of this uh both in his ability to go out and get roles and then also where he thought he should be on, on kind of the walk of hollywood how did confidence play into all of this
1: uh, that's one of Bruce Lee's most distinguishing characteristics is almost like, uh, uh unbelievable self-confidence. Um, one of the things that's, you know, I tried to get my head around, is that he came, he was born in America, but he was raised in Hong Kong. And when he came back to America, when he was 18 years old, he didn't know anyone. You know, he was essentially a, a off-the-boat immigrant. Uh, and when he gets his first break in Hollywood, he does a small part on a TV show that's canceled. But very quickly, Bruce believes that he should be the biggest star in Hong Kong and Hollywood, that he should be bigger than Steve McQueen. And all of his friends told him that was impossible. One of his friends, Sterling Siliphant, said, look, Bruce, you're an Asian in a white man's world. You just you can't be a major star. And Bruce ignored all of that advice and continued struggling for his dream to become uh, the first Asian ever star in a Hollywood movie.
0: I want to know perception versus reality and there's obviously a lot of mystique around Bruce. What were some things that you found out not to be true? And were there certain things that almost thought couldn't be possible, were possible with Bruce? Uh,
1: That's a great question. Um, One of the images, because in his last movie, Enter the Dragon, he plays a Shaolin monk and he dies a month before that movie's released. And so a lot of people took Bruce to be that character essentially this monastic martial arts master who doesn't do anything else, and his body is his temple. And the truth, as we pointed out, was he was an actor first, and he behaved a lot like a Hollywood actor in the 60s. He bought a mink coat. He drove a Porsche. He had a few affairs. He liked to smoke pot. All of the things that, you know, actors in the 60s did, um, but you don't associate with a monastic martial arts master. Uh, And so one of the things uh, I had to do in writing the book was get my head around the fact that he really was an actor first. uh, And if you understood that, you could understand his behavior. For the second part of the question, I think what's amazing about Bruce is he actually was as good as his uh, image uh, has been portrayed or is legend about being a martial arts master. Uh, he was the very top of the to- at the time. Um, all of the martial arts stars like Chuck Norris studied under him. And so he really was a first rate martial artist. A lot of people like to say, you know, he was just an actor, but he was both. He was a great actor and he was an unbelievable martial artist.
0: I mean, you mentioned how great of a martial artist he was. What in your research did you uncover to be just the most miraculous thing he was capable of doing? I know there's a lot of talk around the one-inch punch and uh, some of his feats of strength. What really impressed you? (laughs)
1: Yeah. So the one inch punch is great. I've tried to learn that one. I don't know how to do it. Um, he could, he could put his fist one inch in front of a person's chest and knock them back eight feet. Um, and he did that by relaxing his whole body and focusing and then whipping it like a whip all in. Focusing the entire energy at that one point at his fist, and it's one of the sort of you know it's a it's a show off technique. You don't actually use something like that in a fight, but he was able to sort of prove how much power you can generate, even as someone who was five foot seven, one hundred and thirty five pounds. He could knock, knock back much bigger men, so I do think that that was one of his uh, most stellar things. Um, but uh, what everyone talks about when they uh, the people who sparred with Bruce. Was is he had a kind of preternatural sense of timing when he sparred with you? He knew before you were going to do something what you were going to do, and we don't know how he had this ability, but everyone attests to it. And so, right before you're about to throw a punch, he would be on you because he could just sense that's what you were going to do.
0: I mean. You took seven years to do the research and write this book. First off, what made you commit seven years uh, of your life to tell this story? And then what's the hardest aspect about writing about Bruce Lee?
1: Uh, So the way to get into a seven-year project is to think it's only going to be a two-year project. (laughs) So, delusion is a very important <laughs> factor for book writing. You uh, you know, I signed the contract, it was supposed to be a two-year deal, and then I got to the end of two years and I realized I've still got a ton of work to do. And so, the reason why it's seven years is because I was committed to, to making the book be as good as I could possibly write. Um, I think a lot of books get cut short. Uh, cause the author runs out of money or they want, just want to get it out or they get tired. And what I decided was, you know, Bruce Lee changed my life. He deserved uh, the best effort I could put into it. And so I wasn't going to quit until I knew it was as good as I possibly as a human being could write it. And so that took seven years to do. Um, I wish it had taken less, but that's, that's the amount of time it took to get the product to be as good as possible. Um,
0: And what was the second part of the question? No, I was asking the hardest part of of writing this book. So I think almost a better way to encapsulate that is during these seven years is what's that process look like? I mean, how does the first two years differ from the next five years?
1: Yeah, so for the first uh, two to three years was just pure research. Um, I spent six months in Hong Kong interviewing friends, family members, and colleagues. I spent uh, about the equal amount of time around the U.S. in L.A., Seattle, places where he lived, talking to people. Um, It's often better to interview people in person if you can because you get a sense of body language when they're telling you stories, you know, which stories they're confident about and which ones you kind of feel like they're hedging. Um, And then once I had all those interviews, I during those first three years, I also read everything that's ever been written about Bruce Lee. And the truth is, it's not very good, most of the writing, but there's a lot of it. <laughs> so I got uh, all that material down into a single document, which was like 2,000 pages long with over a million words. And that really gave me a sense of what all the information was available. <clears throat> and from there, uh, I spent the next three years essentially whittling it down and finding places where there was a gap in the story, and then going back and researching that more. Um, And so that's, I would it was a constant, the last three years was a constant back and forth. I would start writing a chapter and then realize, oh, that doesn't make sense. Let me call up so-and-so. Maybe they can uh, inform me of why these two stories don't fit together.
0: I'd love to uncover the specifics during your research. You mentioned this million word document you have. When you're reading all of this, what is your note taking process like? Uh, Are you writing out on note cards? Are you using a tape recorder, anything like that? Or is it all off memory?
1: Um, so what I would do is, and this is not the most efficient way to do it, but it was the method I used, is I would just put a book down and highlight it, the first one I read it, and then go back through and retype that into a Word document. Um, uh, for the interviews, I'd have them transcribed and then cut and paste the important parts of it into the chronological order um, so that I, I could look at, say, Um, his childhood and have everything that was ever written about his childhood in one place. Uh, And then the second step was I would take that into a different document and then sort of break that down into outline form, sort of, you know, years one through four, um, his schooling, uh, studying martial arts, his childhood acting, and then start writing it out based on those notes Uh, And then as you're writing, that's when you really get a sense of how good your notes are because um, it will either flow or you sort of hit a point where you're like, oh, I would have to make stuff up to figure this out. Okay, I guess I better research (laughs) it more.
0: Were you pretty routine when you actually came to the writing aspect of it? Was it, hey, every morning for four hours I'm going to strictly write?
1: Uh, I wish I was a routine dr- writer. So, so does my wife. Um, I'm a sort of passion writer, so what I do is I basically uh, clean the house and do everything else that has to be done, and then the, the level of guilt builds up to the point where then I'm forced to sit down and write. Uh, and so what that means is it's, it's a kind of stop-start process. Sometimes uh, really good days where you write for eight hours and you're amazed about what you did, and then there'd be periods for like a week where I couldn't get force myself to sit down. Um, and that totally makes my wife miserable. So, um, that, uh, that's, that's my process. It's an ugly one. I have friends who are like, you know, they get up at six and they write for three hours and then the rest of the day, they do whatever. And I totally hate those people.
0: (laughs) What's the feeling like once you're done this seven year project?
1: Um, (laughs) you know, the worry never ends. Uh, what I tell sort of young writers, uh, who are just starting out is that writing the books, half the process selling it is the other, um, uh, not only because your whole career depends on what your sales number is, but also because you, you know, you've done this work, you want to get it out to the most people possible. Um, and so you immediately just switch and you, you think to yourself who would be interested in talking to me about this, who can, who would do reviews and all of that. So, um, that's, Uh, I I really do feel like uh, most writers think, oh, I finished it, I'm done, but actually you just started.
0: Mm. I mean, I feel like you must have an incredible connection with Bruce right now. What lasting impact are you most grateful for that he had on you?
1: Um, you know, one of the things that happened is when you're sort of writing a biography and this is my first one, I felt like an actor trying to, you know, imagine this character. Um, so I could put him on the page the way an actor recreates a a human being on stage. Uh, and so you feel an emotional connection to them. Uh, and during the middle of this process, um, You know the advance money ran out because it was only supposed to take two years, and that's the section I was writing where Bruce was in Hollywood, and he bought a house he couldn't afford, and he runs out of money. (laughs) And so, I'm I'm actually kind of shaking as I'm writing the section where Bruce, and I'm like, come on, Bruce, you can make it. Um, And what he did for me is uh, that he never gave up. Um, and by all accounts, he should have the odds he faced were insurmountable by anybody else's standards to be the first Asian, the star in a Hollywood movie. Uh, the best he could do for about four or five years were just these bit parts and TV shows. And yet he never ever quit. And that sort of inspired me. I was like, well, if Bruce can be the first person to star in a hollywood movie i can finish his biography um and so that was uh, to me the lesson i think of bruce lee's life is that if you're willing to pay the price um even impossible things are possible
0: i mean do you think that drive of his was just his true self-belief
1: yes i think it was a self-belief but i also think there were a couple other factors that are interesting part of it he was driven by anger Um, And I think that uh, he was also driven by a kind of innate competitiveness that he had with his brother, his father, with Steve McQueen. One of the things he did to drive himself was to use somebody who was above him, who was doing better as his goal and standard. And that's what he did with Steve uh, in Hollywood. But he had even done that earlier in um, Hong Kong. With He had a friend, uh, William Chung, who was better than him as a fighter and a martial artist. And so he set out to be better than William Chung. And his teacher, he wanted to be better than him. And so Bruce Lee really kind of personalized his competition. And he used that as a kind of prod to drive him every day.
0: I'm thinking back to some of Nike's old marketing campaigns around Michael Jordan and people wanting to be like Mike. If people wanted to be like Bruce, what are some of the first steps they need to take?
1: Uh, Well, first, he was uh, very rational in his goal setting. That was one of the fun things about writing about Bruce is you could see him calculating what he needed to do to get ahead. So, for example – When the Green Hornet was canceled and he was a, you know, he went from being a salaried actor to somebody who didn't have a job, he thought, how can I get ahead in this industry? And what he did was he became a martial arts instructor to celebrities. So Steve McQueen and James Coburn were his students. And he did that not only because they were paying him a ridiculous amount of money per hour to train with him, but more importantly, because they were the connections to get him ahead. And so Bruce was very sort of um, strategic in the way he thought about his career. That's one of the things. The other thing that we touched on is, of course, the unwillingness to give up. Um, there is there is a way in which you can kind of bend the universe to your will if your will is strong enough. And Bruce proves that point. Uh, and then the final thing is uh, it helps if you are doing something that you love. And Bruce Lee loved acting, and he absolutely He was obsessed with the martial arts. So even when things weren't going well, um, he was doing, you know, practicing four hours a day of martial arts. He might have done that anyway, even if it wasn't in his career interest. And so he combined his career interests with his passion.
0: Yeah, his passion, studying of the martial arts, you mentioned at times working on his craft four hours a day. What do you think his training would look like uh, if he was alive today, as still late 20s? Because I know you mentioned he was obsessed with supplements and his eating and all the dietary restrictions. Do you think he would have engaged in so many different things with how research has progressed?
1: yes so what's fascinating about bruce lee is he's the uh, amongst the many things but he was one of the first he was the first martial artist to train like a modern athlete and at the time even athletes didn't train like modern athletes in the nfl they thought weightlifting hurt you uh, so it was banned uh nfl players in the 60s weren't allowed to lift weights on a lot of clubs And so Bruce Lee was lifting weights, he was doing road work, and as you mentioned, he was very experimental with um, his diet and his exercise. Uh, He read all the muscle and fitness magazines of that era, and those all sold these supplements. So he would buy those, He, he had special diets, he even ground up meat and drank the, the blood of cows um, in a weird experiment. So I think he would have continued and every new thing that came along that was touted, he would have tried it out himself to see whether he thought
0: it worked. Man, just absolutely fascinating. And you mentioned how strategic he was in his career. And I want to get to you a little bit. And you're a Princeton graduate, a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, incredibly impressive background. Did you always know you were going to be a writer or is this something you just kind of came into?
1: Um, I always wanted to be a writer, but I grew up in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, my father was a doctor. It was it believed that writing wasn't actually a profession. <laughs> and I'm not sure they were wrong. <laughs> I think, I think, I think they, they were onto something. Um, but, you know, I was told, you know, you can be a doctor or a lawyer or a businessman. Those are your three options, son. Um, And so I kept it quiet that this is what I wanted to do. uh, And I went to college. And then when I dropped out of Princeton to go to the Shaolin Temple for two years, that was sort of my first break with, you know, what doing what's accepted, essentially climbing the ladder that's set out in front of you, uh, a break with tradition, as it were. Um, And uh, after that, I felt like, you know, it went well. I was able to pull it off. If I could do that, something as hard as that, I could be a writer. Uh, and I went to grad school and I really didn't study anything. I basically uh, spent all my free time writing things. Um, and initially I had hoped to be a screenwriter. Because I was back in the early 90s and Quentin Tarantino had just written Pulp Fiction. And so there was this whole thing about the writer auteur. Um, and so I went out to Hollywood and tried to sell the screenplay and realized quite quickly how difficult that is. Um, and strategically, I thought about it, um, that I was trying to skip too many steps in the writing process, and I hadn't sort of paid my dues and worked from white belt up to black belt. And so I went to New York and just started at the very bottom of the publishing industry, writing you know, book reviews and you know, uh, restaurant reviews, and slowly built up a clip base and sort of learned how to be a professional writer. And then from there, got my first book deal, and that was optioned as a movie, and so went from there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I thought about it in certain ways, kind of like Bruce Lee It's sort of like, how do I crack this system that I don't understand?
0: I mean, that's a very humbled perspective there and in, in understanding that you need to start from that white belt mentality. Had you ever done anything like that earlier in your life that made you have that thought process?
1: Um, You know, martial arts, I think, was my great example, and that's why I feel so indebted to Bruce, was that's the first art form that I took seriously and uh, dedicated myself kind of wholeheartedly to. Um, And when I got to the Shaolin Temple, I was basically a white belt there. Uh, And over time and through practice and doing it eight hours a day, I got to be where I was pretty good. Um, You know, not the best in the world, but good. Good, and so uh, I realized a couple things, which is, you know, if you're willing to what the Chinese call uh, eat bitter uh, or or suffer, if you're willing to, you know, pay your dues, uh, you can accomplish a lot of things, even if it's not your natural talent. And you know, I'm not physically gifted the way Bruce Lee was, and I knew I would never be the world's best martial artist. Um, But I thought, you know, I'm actually somewhat clever, and I like to write that. That's the art form for me, and that's when I sort of switched over to becoming an author or a writer.
0: Leaving school, flying to the other side of the world, dedicating two years of your life to the Shaolin Temple. First off, was that just uh, one night you thought, "Hey, this is what I'm going to do," or were this years leading up to this decision?
1: I think all major decisions in life have a lot of sort of underground subconscious things going on, and then it clicks for someone. Um, and so for me, I'd spent a long time, because I'd been a kind of bullied kid, I was obsessed with uh, ways to sort of gain courage. Uh, and, you know, I would thought about things like, you know, I want to be special forces and I'll join the army. I wanted to do something that was uh, a little bit dangerous and out of the way. To pr- I felt like I needed to prove something to myself. Uh, and then I was interested in martial arts and Chinese culture, and I was talking to a professor about, you know, where in China can you learn Kung Fu? And he asked me, do you really want to learn the real Kung Fu? And I was like, yes. And and then he said, um, then you should go to the Shaolin temple. Uh, and I knew about the Shaolin temple because that's mentioned in enter the dragon and I'm a Kung Fu movie fan. And that's mentioned throughout, You know, it's this mythical place. And the idea that it really existed just clicked in my head. I was like, that's what I have to do. And I think you have to be 19 and really stupid <laughs> <laughs> to, to have to, to think. You know, as a 47 year old, I look back and I'm like, boy, that was dumb. And if my son came to me and said that, I'd be like, no, nah, son, you don't want to do that. But um, I, I, at the time, it was like, of course, I'm going to the Shaolin Temple. And I told my father, and he was, he was like, you're insane. Um, but you know, in a weird way, um, life is made by taking those offbeat choices because uh, I think in a way they define who you are. And and, and in the end, it worked out for the best, um, but it was a, a bit crazy and
0: off-kilter to do it. I mean, I know your first book uh, kind of wrote about your temple experience, but could we go a little bit into the detail? I mean, what is it actually like there in the temple?
1: Uh, so I was expecting it to be like the Kung Fu TV series with um, David Carradine, these kind of windswept hills and this – monastic life Um, and so I actually brought a sleeping bag because I expected that when I knocked on the door they wouldn't let me in (laughs) until (laughs) until I camped out for three weeks and then they'd be like oh that foreigner, he is very dedicated let's let him in Uh, so that's what I thought what what it was and instead what had happened was the temple had been destroyed during the cultural revolution in China Um, but when Deng Xiaoping reopened China in the late 80s um, capitalism became the thing uh, and so the local communist party had reopened the temple as a tourist trap essentially a tourist attraction um, and so they were into making as much money as possible so when I wandered in the only white guy uh, from America all they could see were dollar signs and so they were really happy to let me in uh, and study with the monks if I would pay the fee um, but the monks were absolutely and I would have left because they were sleazy dudes but the monks were absolutely stunning the best martial artist I think I've ever seen, uh, and extraordinarily nice as well. And so they took me under their wings, and even though I didn't know anything and I was just this awkward uh, foreigner, uh, guided me and looked after me. Uh, And so... The amazing thing in the early 90s about the Shaolin Temple was, A, I was the only white person there, B, there were like 10,000 Chinese kids in the village studying kung fu all day long, and C, there was no movies, TV, um, girls, anything to distract you from only doing kung fu. Uh, so we trained in the morning, in the the afternoon, at night. It was seven, eight hours a day of martial arts. That's all we talked about. It's all we thought about. It was complete and total immersion and totally obsessive. And for my personality, it was exactly what I wanted and what I needed.
0: I mean, I would love hearing about some of the details, both the physical components of the training and then also the mental. And if we could start with the mental, I mean, you mentioned all the free time you had just to think and fully be immersed with this. What mental game did you develop? What what new edges did you walk away with that?
1: Uh, So the Chinese, as I mentioned earlier, have this phrase, churku, which means to eat bitter. And their idea is that in order to build character as a martial artist, you have to suffer. Um, And so they would essentially just put you in situations where you would test the limits of what you could do. It it reminds me a lot of sort of like extreme uh, military training uh, where you just, would do a horse stance and see how long before you collapse. Um and you just keep training until you can't move anymore. Uh, and so there was a lot of sort of just basic mental toughness um, going against the limits that you have physically and mentally. And then they pick you up and then the next day you do it again and you can go a little farther. But one of the lessons I thought was most important that I learned was one of the reasons I'd kind of never stood up for myself before was not only fear of, uh, it wasn't fear of getting hurt, but it was, uh, fear of losing. Um, and one of the things my coach said to me was, you have to lose a lot before you can win. And so they would throw me into, you know, sparring matches against guys who were like the national or regional champion that I had zero chance of doing well against. <clears throat> and they, they just kept doing it until I was no longer afraid of losing. It's just something that happens. Oh, I fight that guy. He kicks my butt. And then tomorrow I fight him again. And over time, once you lose your fear of losing, it loosens you up um, and allows you to react in ways that you wouldn't when you're operating under that fear that of uh, you know I think losing carries with it a sense of humiliation uh, and once you get over the fact that like ah he's better, he's going to beat me, you no longer fear being humiliated, and it it allows you to improve faster uh, and so for me uh I think he said something like, you can't win until you learn how to lose, and I've always kind of held that to my heart, which is if you enter a new field, you should expect to be bad at it for a while um, before you can be good.
0: I mean, you equated the training almost to an elite military training such as a Navy SEAL, and we've had a few of them on, and a lot of times they talk about people reach their breaking point. Were you broken during your time there at all?
1: uh yeah um, there were a couple of times where I got in the ring with a guy uh and he just knocked me around so badly that I just I wanted to quit uh The advantage was there was no bell to ring <laughs> they think they weren't trying to get rid of me because I would have rung the bell and gone home um but uh, you know, I was stuck there um and uh you know they were. They had gone through the process themselves, so they, they were good about picking me up afterwards. Uh, but yeah, there were several times where I was like, this is impossible. I hate this. I, I want to go home. I want my mommy. <laughs> I, want, I want her to kiss me and put, tuck me into bed because this sucks. Um, but for whatever reason, I stuck with it. And, uh, you know, it, it, in the old saying, it made a man out of
0: me. Yeah, I mean, now, late 40s today, what are you still incorporating that you learned during your time there?
1: Um, you know, I think, uh, th- it infused me with a, a degree of confidence that I would have lacked otherwise because, uh, it was like a really stupid, crazy thing to do. And yet it worked out well. Um, and so for me, even like doing a seven year project on Bruce Lee, I'm like, this isn't anything like getting beat up at the Shell and Temple. All I gotta do is keep reading books and taking notes. So um, you know, in a way everything else seems uh easy in comparison and having that sort of mental framework where you can go, Well, I mean I, I went through that, so I can do any of this stuff. Um, that's very useful during periods when, you know, in the middle of writing this Bruce Lee book, I was like, I'm so sick of this. I don't wanna read another book about Bruce Lee. I thought I loved him, but he's just driving me crazy <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I would have given up if I didn't have that kind of like, you know, you don't quit. Um, and so I think it's useful for every young man to, to go through an experience where they're tested to their limits and they learn how to not give up.
0: You mentioned how these monks out there were some of the most impressive martial artists you've ever seen. Is there a move, a feat of strength, something they did during your time there that you still remember?
1: Uh, the thing I remember the most is there was a monk named Monk De Ching, and he was like my best friend there, and he was, by most of the other monks, considered the best of all of them. Uh, and he practiced a kind of kung fu which they called lightness kung fu, um, but it was about leaping ability. Uh, and so he did a thing where he would run across a wall and... Um, and then kick a bag and he could go seven steps. Like he would go one, two, three, and then he'd jump onto the wall and then he would do seven steps across a wall perpendicular to the ground and then jump off of it and then kick a bag. And it's, it's like some matrix shit you know, <laughs> watching him do that. And I tried, I was like, okay, he can do that. I'm going to try that. I, the most I ever got was two, you know, I go one, two, bam. And then I'd collapse onto the ground. Um, and so I still to the life of me don't know how he did that. No one else at the monastery could do that. It was unique to him. Um, but yeah, so I still think about, uh, Dutching running across a flat wall, like, uh, you know, Tom Cruise and mission impossible or something like that.
0: I'm so glad I asked that question because like the next 20 people I go out and talk to now, I'm going to be bringing up that story and just how, how fascinated I am, what people are capable of. And I think that kind of leads into mastery. And, and what are your thoughts around mastery? Say someone's listening to this and they want to go out and master something. What are some of the requirements?
1: Well, the first thing I say about it in general is I think every human being, but I think particularly young men's lives is improved by achieving mastery of some activity. And it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, painting or whatever, but being very good at something uh, reaffirms a sense of self. In a way, and the reason why I knew this was when I would meet the monks who were masterful at something, they just carried themselves in a way that was different from everybody else, and it made me want to be masterful at something myself. Um, the conditions for it are um, really a kind of unrelenting drive that we've talked about a lot on this program, Uh, the ones who become masters are the ones who don't quit. Um, You know, there were 10,000 kids at the Shaolin Temple, and a lot of them after three or four years were like, I've had enough of this, this sucks, I'm going home. Uh, And, you know, the ones who become masters... Basically, with Kung Fu, what they said was it, was it takes three years of constant training to be good and 10 years to be a master. And, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has that, you know, famous 10,000 hours theory. Um, but that is reaffirmed by what I learned at the temple. There's a certain amount of time that everyone has to put in. I do think that it's important sometimes to realize people's talents lie in different areas and so occasionally you'll see someone who's you know determined to be a rock star and you think you know you can put in as many hours as you want my friend but if you're not <laughs> going to be a rock star so you do have to be practical in a sense of knowing what your skills are and uh, and I, at a certain point realized I wasn't going to be the greatest fighter who ever lived, but that I could be a good writer. Uh, and so a willingness to accept, uh, the limitations of one owns talent, I think is crucial and knowing what your skills are. Um, but then if you, if you're in the area where your talent lies and you're willing to put in the time and then third, finding the right teachers, um, there's a lot of people who want to do it from their home. Uh, and sometimes uh, becoming a master requires moving to where the other masters are. Um, and I think if you do those three, you find a good teacher school, you put in the time, and you focus your in the area that you're innately talented at, um, then I think it's quite possible for anybody to master something.
0: I mean, you're someone who's studied and worked with some of the greatest masters ever in their respective fields. So those are wise words, and one the listener should definitely jot down. Uh, in your second book, Tapped Out, you worked with a lot of mixed martial artists, and, and I'm curious, who's the most impressive fighter you've ever worked with?
1: Um, you know. Uh, well, there's two, um, and I didn't work with them so much as I was in the same gym. I don't want to claim, um, you know, uh, that they were like buddy buddies with me, but George St. Pierre, uh, is one of the greatest mixed martial artists of all time. And he was also what I thought was interesting about him is he was one of the nicest human beings. There was a kind of shyness. And so, um, you don't associate that with killer fighters who go in the ring and knock people's heads off. Uh, and I thought it was simply that he just was so good at it. It was almost like a surprise to him that he was this good at like knocking people's heads off. And, uh, he would have been like a really great accountant. You, know? <laughs> you you're like you're just a kind of quiet, thoughtful soul who's been stuck in this like warrior's body, um, and so I just found that fascinating that combination because you just most of the fighter guys you can you get it they they their dads were mean to them <laughs> like they, they've got a chip on their shoulder um, you can get where they're coming from but he was just unique because he was just you know somebody blessed him with the talent that didn't quite fit his personality. Uh, and then the final, the second person was Randy Couture. Uh, I trained at his gym for six months. Uh, and his son was actually my uh, training partner. Uh, and his son was like half my size and kicked my ass. So uh, <laughs> so I, I remember him distinctly. But uh, Randy was like 43 winning championships. Um, he was like a world champion at 43. And it reminded me that... <clears throat> there are some people who, um, through a gift of genetics and also a dedication of their own spirit are capable of doing things long past what the rest of us, um, think we're done. Uh, and so I always found him sort of inspirational because at the time I was like 35 or 36 and I'm like, I'm too old for this. (laughs) (laughs) These young guys, I don't want to get up in the morning and these these young guys. And then I'd watch him and he was, you know, throwing people around you know, he was eight years older than me. So, um, both of those were my two inspirations.
0: Yeah. No, no, two, two fighters I've admired for years. So it's cool hearing your, uh, your inside perspectives and stories there. What do you research? What do you study, uh, in your own time when you're not working on a new book?
1: Um, you know, it's funny because, uh, it's a weird thing. Like I have a friend who's an actor and has trouble watching other actors. Cause it, like they can't do it for fun. And I have the same thing with books. Like if I'm reading a book, I'm breaking down how they're doing it. So for fun, what I do is I try to, um, do something completely distracting from it, like watch bad TV. Um, but what I like to study is, uh, documentaries. Um, I just feel like, uh, you know, g- Because it's not in book form, but it's still a lot of nonfiction information, it fills my head with interesting ideas and allows me to make kind of connections that I didn't see before. And a lot of doing, for example, this biography was trying to connect things that other people hadn't. For example, Bruce Lee's connection to uh, the war in Vietnam or um, the Shinkaku Island dispute was something I wrote about, which... Nobody else had made that connection, but I often think that, you know, when you want to understand somebody, you really have to understand their historical context. And so just being generally informed about uh, how the world is right now, but also historically, is really useful for what I do as a writer.
0: Any bio, uh, documentaries you should check out?
1: Um, I just read uh, the one James about James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro. Um, I thought was one of the best ones I've seen in a long time, and then again, uh, also uh, OJ Made in America. Yeah, that was great. Um, that one was really powerful. So um, they're thinking about doing a documentary based on my book, and that's another reason I've been sort of studying documentaries to bone up on them.
0: No, let's hope that uh, that comes to fruition. What about you? What's next, book wise? I'm sure you're not even thinking about that right now, but say something in the back of your mind. What are you What are you planning on?
1: Well, it depends a lot because uh, I, I really enjoyed the biography process and I'd like to do another one. Um, a lot of biographies depend on what sort of uh, uh, arrangements you can come with, either the person themselves or the estate. But one of the people that fascinated me when doing this book was uh, Clint Eastwood, because Bruce Lee modeled his life on uh, his career, actually, on what Clint had done. Clint went to Italy when he couldn't get his career started in Hollywood. And Bruce thought of Hong Kong as his version of Italy. And uh, I think Bruce's career would have been a lot like Clint Eastwood's career. So, you know, uh, it's unlikely I can get Clint Eastwood to say yes, but if I could, he'd be a fascinating person to write about.
0: Well, Matthew, I mentioned it at the top of the show, I picked up your book, read it, and I said, I need to get Matthew on because I enjoyed the book so much. I really do recommend it to the listeners. It is a great read, Uh, it's available now. Uh, I I really can't thank you enough for coming on the show, talking about Bruce, but what I really enjoyed was talking about you and your experiences. So anywhere you wanna direct the listeners to, uh, to check out more about yourself.
1: Yeah, if you can go to my website, uh, www.mattpolly.com, M-A-T-T-P-O-L-L-Y.com. Or if people want to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter, um, Matthew E. Polly, and Facebook as well. So those are all places if people want to ask me questions about the book or find out more about it, that they
0: they can go. Matthew Polly, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There? It's a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you wanna connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then GlobeKick is what you're looking for. GlobeKick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. GlobeKick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Blas islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There? head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.